Good evening, folks. It's time to get started. So very, very good to see everybody. Hope everybody's had a good day. As was announced, we're starting a study of the book of Revelation tonight. It is not the book of Revelations. It's the book of Revelation. And sometimes we get in the habit of saying that. I've even done that before, but it's one, it's singular. It's not plural. But we're going to spend our entire time tonight on an introduction to the book of Revelation because it's very important before we can actually start looking at the text that we have a very, very good understanding about the book of Revelation. And so we'll be spending some time talking about that tonight, and it will take up the entire class period. All right, somebody raise their hand and tell me what they think about Revelation. All right, she says, very interesting, puzzling. All right, and if you heard that last part, if you're not willing to just not to know something, it will drive you nuts, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a little bit. It really is. It's probably, that's the thing about it. The book of Revelation is really a pretty easy book. In fact, as far as books in the Bible go, um, the book of Revelation is one of the easiest because it has very little theology in it. It basically is saying the same thing over and over and over again. It's just presented different kinds of ways. And we'll talk more about that in just a little bit. But normally when people think about the book of Revelation, they think about the fact that it's overwhelming. You open it up and you start looking at it and you say, oh, man, this doesn't make any sense to me. I'm I'm getting lost totally. In fact, a lot of churches will do a verse-by-verse study of every book in the Bible until they get the book of Revelation. All of a sudden, they they don't do it because they're scared of it. Because it is confusing to some people, and people get intimidated by it because they don't feel they have the Bible knowledge to understand it. Um, but it's the least read of all the books of the Bible because of that. But yet, it's the only book in the New Testament that comes with a blessing in, in, inside it. Somebody read for me chapter 1 and, and verse 3. So right here at the very beginning, it tells us if whoever reads this book, and that's going to be us in this class, are going to receive a blessing. The other books in the New Testament don't say that. This book says that. So this is a book we ought to be reading because we get a blessing from it. And we'll talk more about that blessing uh, later on. But somebody else help me out again. Tell me what you know about the book of Revelation. And there's no wrong or, or right answers here. Uh, you, you may change your thinking about it as we go through the class, but... That's not what the purpose of this question is right now. Just what do you think about, Roger? All right, it's, it's, a, it's a book that describes John's vision, okay? All right, admonishes us to continue in our faith, and we will overcome, and we'll say more about that in a little bit. Anybody like to add anything else? Yes, Jeremy? It is written in a different style, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, too. Uh, but somebody tell me what, um, Karen did a pretty good job of that, but somebody tell, somebody tell me what the book of Revelation is about. What's the, what's the, what's the book about? What do, we, what do we learn in there? All right, got prophecy. Unveiling of Jesus Christ, I like that. I think I saw Jeremy saying that. All right, we win in the end. Encouragement. So like I said, all these are good answers and um, appreciate them very much. The main thing about the book of Revelation that makes it different from a lot of other... Come on in. That makes it different from a lot of other books is we do not have to understand every detail to understand it. And that's kind of what Julie was alluding to. 
uh, that she admitted that she can know that uh, something, she can't, how did you put it? You can know you don't know what, the, what something is, but you can still be happy with that. And, and we're going to talk more about that, but we need at the very beginning to understand and appreciate the fact that we may not understand every detail that we have in this particular book. And I think in some ways we can't understand every detail we have in this book, but yet we can get the overall graphs of the book. Um, my hope and prayer at the end of this class, however long it takes, hopefully it won't take 13 years, but at the end of this class, you'll be able to say, well, that makes sense to me. I understand it now. And I believe that's something that's important with any book of the Bible because um, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 33 that God is not the author of confusion. So I don't think he would give us a book that would confuse us where we can't appreciate it and understand it and use it. Yes, Jeff. And, and that's a good point. I, I, I'm not the one that came up with a statement. Somebody else did, and I don't remember who said it. But they said, when you read the book of Revelation, you see the blood of Christians on every page. And um, that, that's what the book of Revelation is about. Michael? Very good point. And we're going to spend some time talking about that. Uh, no, it was not confusing to those in the first century. That's something we need to very well make sure we understand. It's confusing to us now, and I'll explain why in just a little bit. But before we do that, who wrote this book? I think everybody knows this. Who wrote this book? Yes, Chris. John. John the Baptist. Was it John the Baptist? No, was it John the Baptist? Not if he was in Patmos. <laughs> oh, he was, in, he, was, he was a man on an island, wasn't he? The Isle of Patmos. That's right. But it wasn't John the Baptist, though, was it? He was dead. Yeah, he had his head cut off. Yeah. It was, it was John, the beloved disciple. See, she's, going, she's trying to remember stuff when I taught this before. All right. But anyway, it was written by John, and he was on the Isle of Patmos. Um, there are some disagreements about how you date this particular book, but I'm a firm believer that this book was written somewhere between A.D. 94 to A.D. 96, because I believe it was written during the reign of Domitian, who was the worst persecutor of Christians that the church had ever seen. He was a Roman emperor who did more to try to destroy Christianity um, because as you go through this book, as we've already talked about, there's the blood of Christians on every page. It was obviously during a time uh, of uh, persecution and the height of the Christian persecution was during his reign. So most people believe uh, that it was written during sometime during this uh, time period. Um, the reason why the book is called Revelation is because it's a, trans, it's a, a translation of the Greek word apocalypse. It's the word we get our word apocalypse from. But when we think of apocalypse, what do we think of immediately? Destruction, like boom, something, uh, the Lord's second coming and all that kind of thing. That's not what the word means. The word uh, apocalypse uh, that we get our word revelation from just simply means a disclosure or an unveiling. Literally in the Greek, it's the idea of revealing hidden facts to a chosen person. And I believe that the hidden facts that are being exposed to a chosen person here are the Christians that were living in the first century. And God wants to reveal some things to them that's hidden from the rest of the world because the rest of the world would use the, the ammunition from this book to try to hurt them or harm them. But this book could be distributed in a hidden kind of way with hidden kind of facts that would reveal to be revealed to someone who had been chosen. And, of course, that would be uh, the Christians of the first century. 
I think it's important that we understand the historical background of this particular book. Um, it was written, of course, during the time of the Roman Empire. And if you ever do a study of the Roman Empire, uh, you would understand that it was the last great, powerful empire that the world had ever seen. It went all the way from the British Isles to the deserts of uh, northern Africa, from the Atlantic Ocean all the way to the rivers Euphrates. Uh, it basically ruled the world. Uh, in this day and age, if we uh, were living under such an empire, that means that the entire known world that we have today, all the different countries, all the different continents would be ruled by one dictator. Imagine what that would be like to live in a situation like that, but that was the situation in the historical world of the Roman Empire, and that was the situation that the first century church lived in. They lived under one empire with one ruler, and it was a dictatorship because he was an emperor, and you had to do what he said, or he could take your property, he could cut your head off, he could feed you the lines, he could burn you at the stake, he could take your children and sell them into slavery. Uh, this was a terrible, terrible time to live, especially if you were a Christian or not even a Roman uh, citizen. Uh, this was also a time historically of great wealth. Uh, there's an old saying that said that all roads lead to Rome. And what they mean by that is that it was the, the commerce capital of the world. This was where all the wealth came in. But what's interesting of that, about that is that there was a great disparity between those who were in power and, and the common man. For example, Caligula, who was an awful emperor, but he spent $500,000, I don't know about dollars today, what it's be worth today, $500,000 today on just one banquet. Uh, his wife uh, spent, uh, got a jewelry ensemble that cost over $2 million. Nero, when he was emperor, he paid $160,000 for roses. But the daily wage for the average citizen living in Rome at this time would be 18 cents. So quite a, dis a disparity. Um, what kind of religion did the Roman people have? All right, heard Roman gods. And what is a Roman god, Eric? All right, we'll come back to him in a minute. But basically the theology of the Roman Empire was the Roman gods. You had your Zeus, you had your Hera, you had your Mercury, you had your Aphrodite, you had your Mars. Um, you had all these different uh, Roman gods that they basically copied from the Greek gods, just kind of gave them some new names. But there it brings up a, a, an interesting point. As time went on and the emperors became more and more powerful, those Roman gods started falling into the background. And it became all about emperor worship. As they gained more power, starting sometime after Augustus Caesar, uh, they insisted that there be emperor worship and started considering themselves uh, as God. And so it became the normal thing to do. People quit going to the different temples and worshiping all the old Roman gods. They gave all their time and effort and worship to the emperor which made sense to them because of the fact he was the one running their lives. And you want to keep him happy. Um, you see that even happen, happening today over in North Korea. Uh, when the dictator in North Korea says everybody needs to be sad, guess what? You have rows and rows of people just crying like crazy. And if he says everybody needs to laugh, everybody laughs. And um, 
you know, that's the way it was, of course, with Rome. But the main thing we need to understand historically as we think about the Roman Empire and we think about the emperor and we think about emperor worship is what was the attitude toward Christianity at this time? During the time of the emperors and emperor worship, what was the attitude toward Christianity? All right, they hated Christianity. Right. Um, In fact, people would call them unreligious because they weren't observing the right kind of religion, and that would be, first of all, Roman mythology, and then the other would be they wouldn't worship the emperor. So they would refer to them as atheists even because they didn't believe in the right gods. What else, Karen? All right. They used to be referred to as cannibals during this time period, and why was that? That's exactly right. They were misinformed and thought the wrong thing. Yes, Jeremy. All righty. They also, speaking of the same thing, they thought that Christians were involved in incest because they would be referred to somebody being married to their sister, but what they meant by that was their sister in Christ, not their fleshly sister. But Christianity was hated, Christianity was illegal, and Christianity was persecuted. And the basic reasons for that, of course, was that they placed God's kingdom above Rome's kingdom. Uh, They shunned and condemned paganism, wouldn't have any part of it, and... uh, As Karen says, they were accused of cannibalism, they were accused of incest, but the main problem they ran into and why they were persecuted so heavily was because they refused to worship the emperor. They would not bow down to the emperor. Very nice steakhouse, Uh, and Karen invited me to go with her, which was nice, and um, because her school was putting it on, and I was in line with one of the teachers there, and of course we were talking, and she asked me what I did, and I told her and whatnot, and she says, well, there's something I need to ask you if you're a preacher. And I said, okay. She says, what's the book of Revelation all about? And like I could tell her right there in the middle of just a short time standing in line. And I said, ma'am, I can tell you this. The book of Revelation is about the fact that we as Christians win in the end. We win in the end. And that's really what the whole book is about. Um, as Chris has mentioned, the word overcome appears ten different times in the book. Uh, it's translated in the King James as overcome, but the literal word is conquer. So we got the word conquer ten different times in uh, this particular text. The key verse to the entire book of Revelation is found in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 14. And if some good soul would read that for me, I would appreciate it. Revelation 17 and verse 14. I might have said 7 the first time, but I meant 17. Revelation 17 and verse 14. All right, that right there, folks, is Revelation in a nutshell. The world is going to wage war against the Lamb, Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ will overcome, and so will his followers. That's the book right there. Everything else is either building up to that fact or settling that fact. That's really the whole book. Revelation 17, 14, we can go home now. <laughs> okay? Um, but um, so it's very important that um, we understand that. But obviously, as we go through this book, we're going to discover that the overall subject matter of this book is Rome versus the church. Rome versus the church. As I said, I believe that this was written during the time of, of Domitian, and Domitian uh, took the title um, Dominus et Deus, Lord and God. He believed he was God on earth. And nobody was going to stand in his way that didn't uh, worship him. But really, it's not Rome against the church so much as it is Satan against Christ. As 
good against evil, or evil against good. Um, that's on almost every page of this book. The conflict between evil and good, between Satan and Christ, between Rome and the church. And as I've already said, you're going to see the blood of Christians on every page because of that. And so that's basically the theme of the book, that in the end, we win because Christ is victorious. Now, before I start getting into some of the nitty-gritties of the symbols and whatnot, any comments, feedback, or anything about like that? Yes, Michael. So we're, we're talking about the same thing. You see what I'm saying? They're say, but they're trying to say it's all kinds of different things, but still the answer is going to be the same. It's the victory of Jesus. That's no getting around this book. Now, they can say it's going to involve Russia and China getting together and having a, a battle until the blood rises to the bridles of the horse, but the, still, the answer is still what's the final outcome? We win. So there's no changing of that. The revealing of the hidden thing is the fact that the world may not understand it, and at times our heart may not understand it, but this book has been given to us to make sure we understand that Christ will prevail, and that if you're on his side, you're on the right side. And no matter what the world does to you, no matter what Rome does to you, no matter what Satan does to you, don't you give up. And here are some things I'm going to reveal to you to help you understand and appreciate that, how it's all going to turn out in the end. Exactly right. In fact, they were greatly persecuted. There's no religious freedom whatsoever. Yes, Eric? And, and we don't have time. To, we're not going to get into it tonight because we want to get into the text tonight. But one of the main things that happens at the beginning of this book is um, the persecuted of Christ asking the question, how long? How long? And the revealing that's taking place here is, is Christ, through John, revealing to us uh, what we need to know to help answer that question. And like I said, we'll talk more about that when we actually get into the text because I want to get into details tonight. But the main thing everybody knows about the book of Revelation is this. It's written in some weird language. It's written in symbols. And that's what scares everybody. The word symbol that we use today, meaning symbol, is a translated Greek word that comes from the Greek word sonbalo. Okay? And son means with, and balo means to throw. Um, balo is where we get our word ball from. So what in the world does that have to do with symbol? Well, it literally means that which is thrown with. That's what a symbol, the, the actual Greek word for symbol means that which is thrown with. And the idea is that two concepts are thrown together. And these two concepts, one is tangible and one is intangible to convey the right concept. Yes, Jeremy. With, like I'm, I'm with, oh yeah, you're with me, yeah. Yeah. To throw with, that which is thrown with, is another way of putting it, okay? And so it takes something that is tangible and then adds something that is intangible and it brings it together to make a, uh, another concept. Okay, that's the literal definition of that particular word, and that's what we have here in the book of Revelation. And it's easy to see some examples that we don't even have in the book of Revelation, how that um, uh, works. For example, how many people know what a fox is? I'm talking about the animal, not the girl. Everybody know what a fox is? All right, it's, it's an animal. 
crawls on the ground, hunts, eats. We can go find them. In fact, I saw a dead fox in our neighborhood. Somebody hit it the other day. Anybody ever heard of Herod the king we read about in the Bible? Jesus called him a fox. I don't think he was talking about his looks. Now, what would, when you hear that Jesus called Herod a fox, what, Harry took something that was tangible in the fact here was a real person and attributed him to an animal to create a response as a symbol of something. What did he want us to know about Herod? He was sly. He was cunning. Because we attribute it, that, to a fox. When the Bible refers to Christians as sheep, do you literally think that means that literally we're out there munching grass and bleeding and having a wool cut? No. It's symbolic for the fact that we're under God's care. We need to be fed and we need to be protected. That's why Jesus is referred to as the good shepherd, Though, although I've never heard a place in the Bible where he literally shepherded any sheep. That's how symbolism works. Uh, let me put it to you in a modern day uh, usage. If you see a picture of, skull, of a skull and crossbones, what do you think about? Poison. Some people say pirates, but most people say poison. You're going to say pirates, weren't you? Because sometimes people say pirates, and I go, arr. Um, but anyway, but that's like a universal symbol for poison. Now, are skull and crossbones actually a picture of poison? Not at all. Um, are skull and crossbones by themselves poison? No, but it became the symbol for poison, right? It is, but of course, parables uses, uh, brings the concept of a modern, of a current event or a current or a uh, well-known modern-day um, example of life, and then applies spiritual teaching to it. Whereas a symbol does not have to actually have a spiritual meaning, as we just saw with skull and crossbones. We use symbols all the time. We know it's not literally what we're looking at, but we understand the meaning behind it from the symbol. And here in the book of Revelation, you're going to refer to, um, we're going to see a lot of symbols in here. But here's the thing, and somebody's already alluded to this. I think Michael did uh, a minute ago. Um, there are going to be some times we're going to look at some symbols in this book, and it won't make any sense to us at all. But I guarantee you it made sense to them when they read it the first time. The reason why it doesn't make sense to us is because we didn't live during that time period. We weren't going through that persecution. We are not familiar with, with um, symbols that were important to them. Um, for example, I mentioned skull and crossbones. crossbones. And some of you thought um, poison, some of you thought pirate. But it may be if we show them skull and crossbones in the first century, they thought, well, he must be talking about dead people. We're not living then during this time, so those symbols might not mean anything to us, but it made some it means something to them. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. And, and some people think that's the reason why the book of Revelation is written that way is because they would say, well, this is just a bunch of garbage. This means nothing to me. What are you going to say, Michael? Uh, yeah. So, so instead of calling it Rome, he might call it a beast, might he? Or he might call it that, and I'm not trying to be ugly here, but that great whore. Because um, that's what it says. Um, symbols are there for a purpose. And I bet even now, if we, living in this day and age, would go over to other countries and show them some of our symbols, they would have not have a clue what we're talking about. 
For example, if I took a poster and unrolled that poster and held it up and there was a guy with an American flag hat and a long white beard and mustache and it says, Uncle Sam wants you. And I was over in uh, the Philippines. What do you think they would think? They would say, well, I don't know who this Uncle Sam is, but I don't know him. I'm not going with him. But we understand that represents the fact there was a time in this country when we were trying to get people a list, and Uncle Sam was a symbol for the United States. Okay? Uncle Sam, U.S., you get that, Scott? Okay. All right. I'll make sure. All right. If um, somebody living over, say, in, um, I don't know, the Amazon, and I said something about the fact that um, this person over here is a member of the donkey party and this person over here is a member of the elephant party. They would not have a clue because they don't live within the context that I live in. I, you know what I mean by that. You mean the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. But somebody that doesn't live in my world, within my context, doesn't have a clue what I'm talking about. And so we need to kind of keep that in mind when we're looking at the book of Revelation. There might be something we see there that we can't interpret, we can't understand, we can't figure out, but we've got to understand that we're not living when they live. And it might have been something as clear as it could be when they were living. And so that's something that we need to make sure we understand. Another reason why perhaps it made more sense to them than it does to us is the fact that they knew the Old Testament so well. You start reading the book of Revelation, there is 400 different references to Old, Old Testament Scripture in here. Sometimes it's, it's kind of veiled, and you have to look for it. But somebody that was familiar with the Old Testament, like many of them were, it made sense to them. It doesn't make sense to us because we're not students of the Old Testament like they were because we no longer live under the Old Testament, and we use it. As Paul says, for uh, an example and for our learning, but it's not what we're governed by. So uh, it's, it's something that we um, really don't comprehend as well as they do. But also, you need to understand that John oftentimes in this book is describing things that are indescribable for us. When John sees these visions, he's describing things that, uh, that are uh, such spiritual things such infinite things that our finite mind can't comprehend it because we don't have enough of the ability to fully comprehend what's being described because we've never witnessed it. That makes sense. For example, I'll pick on you, Sharon, since you're right in front of me. Um, I'm going to transport you back to the Civil War, okay? Get ready. Right, you're back in the Civil War, and a soldier walks up to you, and I need you to describe to him what a VCR is. Oh, that's right. He's never seen it. Well, how would you even get started? Well, tell me how you would start. Okay, I, I can visualize a small box, okay? Uh, so it's made out of iron? I don't know what aluminum is. I never heard of aluminum. All right, but say you describe to me perfectly, to a T, what a CD player was, and you were absolutely correct, but because I don't have the mind or the experience that are learning, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. So John oftentimes has to describe heavenly things in earthly ways to help us to have an appreciation for it, 
But at the same time, it's not fully describing in the reality of what it is. He just can't put it in terms that we can understand. And so you're going to run into that sometimes. But also, you need to understand that the number one reason why perhaps the book of Revelation is written in symbols is because symbols have a way of being dramatic and symbols have a way of being comforting to people who need comforting in a dramatic way. Um, Several years ago, um, in fact, I think I cut this out of the newspaper back in the 80s, but several years ago, Family Circus had a cartoon that I cut out that so pictured the symbols of Revelation. I thought, man, this is amazing. I wonder if this guy realized what he's done. But I don't know if anybody will be able to see it or not, but if you're familiar with Family Circus, it's the mom and the dad and the four little kids, okay? And the first little frame in the picture, you've got the daddy, and he's reading a book. And he says, now picture this. And then the next frame says, you're standing by the water's edge and. And then all four of the kids are there, and bubbles pop up what they're thinking about. You're standing by the water's edge and. The oldest boy thought about he was at the ocean at the edge of the surf. The daughter thought she was at a lake. She could see trees, and she could see the lake shining, and she could see the pier. The other boy thought of a creek uh, that uh, had rocks and sticks and that kind of thing in it. Uh, The little boy, I think his name was PJ. I can't remember what his name was for sure. But all he thought about was a gully in his backyard that water ran when it rained. Now, he gave them a symbol. He gave them a picture to think about. You're standing at the water's edge. And all four of them came up with a different answer that was correct, but it was something special to them. And it may be that this guy down here, the youngest one, the reason why he thought about the gully in his backyard was because of the fact in his limited experience being just a little kid, he never experienced the beach. He never experienced being at a lake. And that makes another point that this comic strip so well illustrates. When people in the first century heard one of these symbols, it might have a big, dramatic, comforting effect on them. That doesn't hit us the same way because we don't have the experience of persecution like they did or deal with Christianity in the first century like we deal with today. Um, And so I just think this is just a wonderful illustration of that, of how symbols work in the book of Revelation. He says, you're standing by the water's edge. And all four kids had a picture in their mind. The implication is this a picture that perhaps brought them comfort or something that they thought about or dreamed about when someone said that. But each one had a different experience and each one had a different thought. And the symbols that you read in the book of Revelation are are the same way a lot of times. And um, we need to understand that and and make sure that the purpose of this book is to comfort people and let them know they're going to overcome living in a time when persecution was just heinous and awful. Um, As I said earlier, as we go through this book, you'll discover that the book of Revelation just repeats itself over and over again. just cycles through the same story over and over again, but it uses different symbols and ways to present the exact same thing. And so we need to always keep that in mind as we start going through it, that, that, yeah, he may use, um, refer to um, 
Rome being a beast on these chapters, but he gets over here, he might refer to Rome being a harlot. Um, one chapter, he might refer to Jesus Christ being one way, and then another chapter, he might refer to Jesus Christ being another way. But the point is always still the same point. He's just using different symbols to reemphasize the theme of the book, and that is, we're going to win. We're going to overcome. Rome is not going to beat us. Satan is not going to beat us. Christ is going to be victorious. It just goes over and over again. Um, I want to set down some rules uh, before we actually start studying this book. Boy, we run out of time. Some rules of interpretation when you interpret the book of Revelation. First rule of human hermeneutics when you're dealing with symbolism in a passage is that symbols should always be understood figuratively unless there is evidence to do otherwise. There has to be some reason within the context and the text to tell you that this is supposed to be something other than figurative. You can't mix literal with figurative. For example, you can't take a verse and in one place in the sentence, it said, this is literal, and the next place say, well, this is figurative, this is not correct. For example, saying that Satan is a dragon, that's figurative, but then a thousand years is literal, even though it's in two words of each other. Rules of interpretation, it's always figurative unless there's evidence to show that it's not figurative. There has to be something that gives you evidence. And you can never be dog- dogmatic about a symbol's meaning unless the text gives a clear interpretation. In other words, if we see a symbol and the text doesn't give us a clear in- interpretation, then I can tell you what I think about it, and you can tell me what you think about it, and we can maybe argue about what it actually means, but if the text doesn't literally tell us what it means, we're just spinning our wheels and nobody wins. Okay? Because that's the, the magic of symbolic language, just like the comic strip I showed you a few moments ago. There's the overall lesson involved, but what the symbolism literally means, we could be wrong about. Now, the truth is there. What it represents but saying this represents this, sometimes we have to be very careful about that. And um, a good example of, of how the book of Revelation sometimes gives us a literal interpretation, um, somebody read chapter 1 and verse 12 for me. Here we see the book of Revelation giving us a literal interpretation so we don't have to guess. Other times it won't tell us for whatever reason. Somebody read that for me. Verse one, I mean, chapter 1 and verse 12. All right, I'll just stop there. I'm not remembering my text right. Later on in the text, it says that the golden candlesticks, it literally says, is what? The seven churches. Okay? There's where it's interpreted itself. And I'm sorry, I forgot the verse off the top of my head. Uh, it's verse 20? Okay. What's verse 20 say, Jeremy? All right. There the book of Revelation interprets itself. And we don't have to guess. Nobody can say it can be any other thing because it tells us what it is. But other times when it doesn't tell us literally what it is, then we need to be very careful that we don't get too dogmatic about what it means because we could be absolutely wrong. Okay? And another thing you need to always remember, or we're running out of time, is you never can interpret a symbol in a way that contradicts plain Bible teaching. Don't get to the book of Revelation, all suddenly a symbol shows up that just contradicts everything that the Bible said thus far. That's not the way the Bible works. And so you need to be very careful about that. But the main thing is, as you read the book of Revelation, you need to make sure you get the big picture. That's the whole point of the book of Revelation, is you seeing the big picture. 
Uh, don't let the symbols uh, cause you to miss the point. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Um, don't miss the lesson by trying to figure out the symbols. Uh, anybody familiar that's an artist, what uh, pointillism is? All right, what is it, Jeremy? Yeah, all the little dots. Yeah, okay, well, what he's talking about, I thought he was going to explain it to us. But you see this picture, and this beautiful, this beautiful picture, and it might be of, a, of, of an ocean. It's just beautiful. And you get close to it and get closer to it, you realize it's just a bunch of little dots. And you look at the little dots, you can't see anything. There's nothing there. It's awful. It looks ugly. Well, the book of Revelation is like that. You've got to stand back and look at the big picture because if you get really into it and start trying to figure out all the little dots, you miss the entire picture. Make sure you always look at the big picture. Now, I've got five seconds left, so um, two, two points here. And actually, I'm past time. If the kids come in, we'll, we'll stop. But there's basic, basically two ways of looking at the book of Revelation as far as fulfillment is concerned. There's two schools of thought. There's the futurist and the preterist. The futurists are a group of theologians who believe that everything you read in the book of Revelation is in the future. Uh, the one, they're the ones that come up with the doctrine of premillennialism, or the theory, as they call it, premillennialism. Okay? And um, I'm not going to have a lot of discussion about premillennialism in this class. That's not what this class is about. But the thing that always puzzles me is if all this stuff was supposed to happen in the future beyond our time that we're living right now, what comfort would that be to any Christians in the first century? All this talk about Russia and all this talk about China and talking about um, some world leader being the Antichrist is going to come. Come on in. Come on in. Uh, how is that any comfort to them? Um, tell you what, I'm going to stop, and I'll save this a little bit last for next week, and then we'll uh, actually get in the text next week too. Hope we all learned a little bit tonight anyway.